Greetings, future fossils. This is Michael Garfield welcoming you to another episode of the podcast that explores our place in time. To anchor this conversation in current events, this first week of August 2019 has been a veritable firestorm of trade war news, mass shootings, inflammatory racism, powerful, tragic misunderstandings, a sense that storm clouds are gathering on the horizon as they literally are here in Santa Fe as I record this. And as terrifying as the visionary horizons frequently discussed on this show can be, I think this conversation in particular brings up a lot of material that is not only difficult to face and contend with, but also necessary if we are to ever accomplish anything like the utopian space fantasies that continue to animate so much of our thoughts of and efforts toward the so-called future. Let's start with the fact that there isn't one future, because there isn't one conversation about the future. There isn't one culture that contains these conversations. And like the muscles in a body, it is the tension between these perspectives that says more about where we're actually headed as a planet than any one of them ever could, which is why I'm glad this week to bring you a conversation with Divya Prasad, a planetary science PhD student at the University College London, a geologist, but also a musician, a poet, and a very active voice in a growing and urgent discourse about the trauma, oppression, and inequality that has shaped our history continues to loom like a specter over the way that we think about and dream into the possibilities of the exploration of space. But before we get into this discussion, I want to give a shout out to Fury Bean for joining the Future Fossils Patreon supporters this week. Thanks to you and thanks to the other 139 Patreon supporters that are helping me keep this show independent and helping me as a new father and someone working multiple jobs outside of this podcast to make time to continue these important conversations. We are just a couple weeks away from starting the next round of the Future Fossils Science Fiction Book Club, which over six weeks and three video calls will look at the trilogy of Cixian Lu's Remembrance of Earth's Past, a truly grand and sweeping epic narrative about humankind's first encounter with an alien civilization and how that encounter transforms both parties forever. Seems only appropriate amidst a U.S.-China trade war to celebrate the visionary science fiction coming out of China, especially fictions that honor the difficulty and complexity of reconciling our innumerable differences as a species. It seems harder these days to imagine a Gene Roddenberry Star Trek future, especially when our greatest hopes for setting foot on other worlds come to us from barons of industry and military-industrial programs, and our brightest progressive minds are ensnared in draining and polarizing intramural conflicts about matters that seem important to us today, but one hopes we will centuries from now look back upon 
with the compassionate understanding of wise elders observing the turbulent disputes of children. Can we even make it into space as a species, as a united planet? Or will the momentum of millennia of ethnocentric violence, exploitation, and tragic misunderstanding only afford us a future in which we scale this tragedy into our solar system and beyond? Is our future in space, if there even is one, a common human story of triumph, integrity, wisdom, community, or the fractured narrative of a traumatized diaspora of religious pilgrims, predatory capitalists, and their subalterns? In other words, can we be good ancestors? Can we leave better problems for our children to inherit than the problems we face today? Or are we just too dumb? Thanks for listening to what I believe is a very important discussion with the hopeful but rightfully concerned polymath Divya M. Persad. Divya, it's a pleasure to have you on Future Fossils and to contribute your conversation to what I hope will be a diamond-inscribed uh, super archive on the moon one day. Well, thanks for having me. I'm very excited. So actually, uh, even though we're over 100 episodes in, I don't think I've actually had a planetary scientist on the show yet. So this is a very exciting thing. Oh, cool. But also... Uh, you're a, a, a real and true polymath, and I'd love to connect with you about your music and your writing and your science kind of taken all together. Uh, there's a lot of places we can go with this, but I guess hmm. maybe the right place to start is to talk about your past and how you got into uh, the life that you live today. <laughs> <laughs> I live a very strange life. Um, so... It started when I was four years old, and I love telling this story because I I don't I feel like I haven't changed. I just decided one day I love collecting rocks. I need to do this forever. So I asked my mom, "How do I do this forever?" And she said, "Become a geologist." And I said, "Okay, I'm going to become a geologist." <laughs> um, so I grew up learning how to read and write um, through storytelling and poetry. Um, so my mom is very influential and as well as my grandfather, who is also a polymath. And, um, so she would just have me write little storybooks and we would like staple, staple pages of, uh, just like printer paper together and I would illustrate them and write them. And that's how I learned how to read and write. So it was always through storytelling and eventually poetry. I started writing, um, and reading a lot of children's poetry. Um, and so that was always there and it was very, very much a core part of uh, what I was doing um, or like thinking about as a child. And along with that was the illustrating of these stories and thinking about the visual aspect. And um, so all of that was like instilled in me by the age of four. And I thought, okay, I want to do all of this forever. And here I am. <laughs> so um, my family was very encouraging about all of it. Um, so I just continued to write and write and write and write all these stories and poems growing up um, and reading voraciously books about geology that my family would give me. 
collecting too many rocks, putting them through washing machines, that sort of thing. Um, <laughs> and my, my notion, I remember this the other day, my notion as a kid was that I would fund my scientific research in geology by selling books which is so amusing. And I, I love that I was so innocent. Um, and eventually I realized, okay, it would have to be the reverse. Um, and then over time, so I picked up cello when I was nine years old. Um, and my sister was a musician at the time. She was a, she is a violist. Um, and so she loved teaching me about things. She wanted to be an astronaut. So she taught me about space and she taught me about music. Um, and, you know, space was sort of interesting to me. It was mostly frightening, I think. Um, but music really captured my attention. It was the same sort of feelings that art gave me. Um, so I just put sort of everything I had into cello um, and was very serious about it. And then I realized, okay, I think this is the art that I want to do. Um, and I still have like this fascination with visual art and I play a lot with it, but it really became music. Um, and then so, oh, what year was it? Uh, 2006, 2007. So I was in middle school um, and I watched this documentary about planetary geology, which I had no idea existed. Um, and that blew my mind. I think it was two documentaries I watched in one day. And one of them was about uh, the Cassini mission um, to the Saturn system. And in particular, the Huygens probe. Um, so that was a little probe built by uh, NASA and the European Space Agency that landed on the surface of Titan. And there are these amazing pictures as it descended uh, through the clouds and you see mountains in the distance and uh, river deltas and finally the last image of um, rounded pebbles, which likely be became that way through uh, erosion from fluid. And I saw, I saw these images and I got really, really angry. And I was like, why didn't we learn this about this in school? Right. I, you know, why, why don't, why is none of this like important enough to teach kids? Why did, why am I learning this? Because I happened to turn the TV on at a certain time of day while I was eating a snack after school. Like why didn't no one tell me this? And I'm still angry about that. And I think that's fueled a lot of what I've done, but I said to my, I'm going to be someone who not only studies other planets, but I'm going to, I'm going to work on spacecraft that do it. Um, so that, is that, is I that mean, sort of like, yeah. uh, why didn't anyone tell me that there were way more rocks in space? Yeah, <laughs> yeah pretty much. I mean, I knew, you know, I was like, I was interested in planets a little bit. And I thought, you know, yeah, space, I mean, space is fascinating to me. And I, I don't think I was ever like uninterested in it. Um, but just like realizing suddenly that it's not just Earth that we can study all these like incredibly complex systems on we can study other planets we can compare them to each other we can um draw connections between them we can say uh you know all these processes exist because of the core physics but they happen differently and it's so diverse and like thought-provoking and i think it appealed to a lot of um the artist in me as well because it's it's you know the second you think about planets like a child realizing okay, they're, they're not just rocks in space, they're other worlds. And like that sort of explosion of imagination um, is something that I think has still driven me quite a lot. Um, so yeah, I mean, from there, uh, I, I was very, very focused um, as much as like a kid could be. Um, so I made like NASA my homepage and I started looking up ways I could actually do science while in school. 
Um, so I found some opportunities. Uh, so there was this online learning community through NASA that I applied to in high school and I got in. Um, and so that was a sort of a forum to talk to other kids who were interested in space. And then sometimes NASA scientists would interact. They would have phone calls and do lectures and that sort of thing. And at the end, you could apply to an internship. And I thought, I'm not going to get this, but why not? Um, and I got the internship when I was in high school. And I thought at the time, I still wanted to do earth science and said like, okay, you know, in 20 years, I'll do space science. I really want to like build a core of geology, which is so funny to me now. Um, and I got there and I applied to do an earth science project. And I ended up being put in a, an instrument science team for a mission to Mercury. Um, which is a very cool place to put a 16 year old. <laughs> uh, and that was, that, I mean, that was, that was it. Like I, I thought, okay, I need to do this. Like there's no way I, I'm not doing this for the rest of my life. Um, so I did a degree in geology. I did uh, loads of research uh, within my institution and outside in uh, planetary science and geophysics, um, working towards a PhD um, and here I am. <laughs> I'm doing my PhD. So it's, yeah, it's been a it's been a pretty continuous arc since I was a little kid, and I really enjoy that because I can still feel all of those like feelings and motivations from when I was little, and like the wonder and the awe. And that some you know sometimes it leaves me, and but sometimes when I get to reflect on it, it comes back, and that's such a gift. So that's my story. <laughs> so you know, as someone who went to school for evolutionary biology and and like paleontology and mm -hmm. also have devoted myself to to music mm -hmm. I'm, I'm super excited to talk to another musician scientist about how you feel about time and like Ooh. in particular <laughs> you know the relationship yeah. between like the time of you know cello music and the time mm -hmm. of erosional processes on titan right mm -hmm. like there's enormous mm -hmm. difference in scale but yeah. obviously you and I and have inherited a wealth of, of uh, history of people thinking about the music of the spheres and all of that kind mm -hmm. of stuff. And I'm, mm -hmm. I'm curious, you know, the landscape of, of this for you and, you know, how you relate the, you know, your, your love and your wonder for music and the arts and specifically, you know, your understanding of time in that space mm -hmm. and your love and your wonder and understanding of time in, in the space of planetary science. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've been thinking about this a lot recently um, because I've started to feel like it, it really feels much like the same thing where a lot of my fascination with art and in, including music has been um, more of the experimental and the surreal and, um, thinking about what we consider not just art but how we interact with the visual or what we consider sound um, and that's been uh, something that I've played around with with my compositions um, but yeah thinking about you know how does you know when you don't have sound traveling through space it's something very difficult to actually conceptualize you know it's something we joke about when we watch Star Wars or something what do you really think about it like it's actually really difficult for us as, I mean, at least with, with people who hear, um, to understand how that works. And that's something that's fascinated me and thinking about how, okay, what do we actually consider sound? If we imagine a sound, is that considered music? If the thing that prompts us to imagine the sound, 
is something that's designed by someone is that thing music is what we imagine a piece of music if it's not consistent across people um so i you know i love thinking about these things and thinking about harmony and like the spatial aspect of harmony and melody and i think it's the same sort of feeling of um i mean like yeah different different worlds of thinking of how we can relate to sound, how we can relate to other places. I think it's the same sort of, you know, I'm, I'm so intrigued by what is at the very edge of what we can imagine with our senses. And I think that's why I'm, I'm very interested in like imaging with planets because it's very sensory. It's very tactile. Um, it's very hard to imagine, but also really easy to imagine. And, um, and that's something that I really, really love about poetry and music and thinking about um, what's accessible to us, but also really pushes us to the edge, thinking about what actually constitutes music or poetry. Um, so, I don't know. I think that just makes me a big nerd. <laughs> I think that's the connection. <laughs> Fair. I mean, as a big nerd, you were probably every bit as excited as I was when it was... I think just a few months ago that the uh, the research was published on that exoplanetary system where they mm -hmm. found the planets were arranged in in near perfect fifths. Yeah, yeah, I remember that. and that there was like a uh, it wasn't perfect. There was mm -hmm. just enough uh, of I would you call they were just enough out of tune. Yeah, to not get locked into this uh like that that it actually it had something to do with like i forget like the the gravitational relationships of the planets mm -hmm. and it kept them from locking into some mm. some sort of uh mm -hmm. like death spiral or something the fact right, that right. it was like it was it was th this notion that that uh nature itself in the, the our discovery of of like equal temperament Mm. is a a an accidental rediscovery of something right. that's going on in physics and like this mm -hmm. notion that that the the laws and the properties that we have uh given music that has that sort of uncanny efficacy of mathematics yeah like, why does this work yeah, yeah, yeah. why does everyone recognize a perfect fifth right you know and it's, yeah. it's like it's there in the sky so there's something really magical yeah. about that <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. And so something I'm really interested in with um with planets is uh geophysics and geodynamics. So essentially the relationship between bodies whether it's planetary bodies around a star or moons around a planet, particularly moons. And so with say Saturn's moons, um the the I guess the you know the rhythm of these orbits are the reason why some of them experience tidal heating where they're stretched and compressed which generate subsurface oceans and potentially life. And then thinking about that and like the, the ratio of those, um, those orbits and thinking about how we think about ratios and harmony. And it's the same physical, yeah, it's the same fundamental physical concept, just at such a huge unimaginable scale that actually could affect like evolution. And it, yeah, I think about it a lot. <laughs> yeah. I mean, not to, to dive into this too deeply but yeah the the absurd profundity of our own evolutionary history and its dependence on the tidal action of our moon yeah yeah you know, yeah, just, yeah um i wanted to i want to get into a little bit more about the work that you're doing in, in image sure. processing 
and uh, your constellated desire to be the first cellist on Mars. And there's like a lot, a lot that we can unfold in that. But uh, I would just love to hear more about the research that you're doing for your PhD. Then let's mm. start there. Okay. Yeah. Um, so I'm part of an imaging group at the Mullard Space Science Laboratory, which is part of University College London. Um, so what I do is I take images that have been taken from orbit of the Martian surface from three different cameras, and I make them into 3D images. Um, so essentially, it's a basic concept of stereo vision where you have two images um, overlapping uh, over a region, and they're taken at slightly different angles so we can get depth information. If we process it in a certain way, there's uh, a software that we can use to actually visualize that terrain in 3D. Um, so I've been working on developing a multi-resolution 3D map of uh, the Curiosity rover landing site, Gale Crater, so the entire crater. Um, so it's, uh, yeah, it's three cameras and sort of like a stack of these 3D models with the, um, the original camera images draped onto them. And thinking about what we can do with uh, geological analysis and also public engagement with those. Um, so much of my first year was actually processing those products, um, and then doing all sorts of like really cool validation in 3d, which is so, so rewarding. Um, so one aspect I did was, uh, simulating, uh, Rover images using a 3d visualization software where you can like put a camera on the ground of any 3d terrain and like take a picture of what it views of the terrain as if, uh, you're a Rover or a person on the surface. I mean, then comparing it to what Rovers actually see. Um, so yeah, that was my first year and now I'm going into, uh, the geological analysis. So right now I'm looking at a really huge Canyon to the Southwest of Curiosity Rover, which cuts through, um, this big mountain called Mount Sharp, which is what Curiosity is primarily studying and currently traversing up. Um, so it's really, it's really an amazing feature. It's a giant river, um, giant river channel. So we know water float through it at very high energy and very high volume. Fortunately, I'm not looking at how that river flowed or anything, but it cuts really deep into the stratigraphy of Mount Sharp, which means we can see all of these layers of rock going back in time. Um, so we can study the history of how this thing formed because we don't really know how Mount Sharp formed. Um, so, and I'm doing that in 3D, which is so much fun, <laughs> uh, which means essentially I put these products into a uh, 3D environment and it comes with geology tools and it can trace out uh, all these different beds and their orientations and how thick they are and how distant they are from each other and correlate them across the channel and that sort of thing. Um, so that is the bulk of my PhD and I also um, sort of built into that is how we can use these very accessible tactile product products as I mentioned um, to engage people. Uh, so I'm very motivated by the fact or the idea that, you know, space is for everyone. It's not just that much missions are publicly funded and everyone has like a financial right to the data, which is totally true. But also like, I, I can't live with the idea of like just me looking at what we're seeing from Mars, um, especially these really stunning 3D uh, terrains that make you feel like you're on the surface. I mean, I think everyone deserves to have that experience. Um, so I've designed a few different types of games that I've done with uh, outreach groups like kids. Um, 
and sort of thinking about what the next step is with visualization in an, uh, an interactive way that really engages people um, with with the visual, but also like the spatial sense of what Mars is and what curiosity could be seeing, um, which I think is really important. Definitely. I, I met last year, and we may have talked about this when I first reached out to you like months ago, <laughs> geologically a long time ago, um, <laughs> that uh, I met last year uh, Sasha Samachina at the mm -hmm. Planetary Festival, and she's the one that works at JPL about their mm -hmm. their visualizations and their, you know, the, the, mm -hmm. the VR stuff, like yeah, getting yeah. people into VR and doing work, getting the researchers into VR and, and yeah. standing on Mars. And mm -hmm. so I, I love that stuff and it's really exciting. Um, but I'm always thinking about this. It's important for you to bring up the birthright issue because um, obviously I want to get to uh, issues of, of access in this mm. conversation with you. But like, let's start on, I, I guess, like the absolute worst case scenario angle, which is like I read uh, Arthur C. Clarke and Stephen Baxter's novel, The Light of Other Days, like 99. Mm. It was Clarke's last novel. And he kind mm -hmm. of su he suggests in that that story explores what happens if you know, the rocket program doesn't continue to be this mm -hmm. extraordinary success. What if we, you know, basically culturally cannot reach escape velocity, <laughs> you know, yeah, and, yeah. and and we get to a point where the the best way for us to leave the world is through telepresence, is through, mm -hmm. you know, virtual reality. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, recently to, to create, you know, another poll for the, the goalpost of this next piece <laughs> Um, George Dvorsky just published this piece on, on Gizmodo about how insanely unrealistic our timelines for Mars exploration really are. Mm, yeah. <laughs> and, and specifically the building of permanent settlements on Mars. Yeah. And like specifically right. these issues of the incompatibility of the human body with low gravity environments, mm -hmm. you know, like mm -hmm. we can't even really, we don't even know whether we can conceive a child. Yeah in that mm -hmm. in 38% earth gravity. So like, what are your thoughts on, you know, setting aside all of the, you know, the, uh, the problematic cultural stuff for just a mm -hmm. minute, there's a deeper sort of biological issue here. And like, how do you feel about that as mm -hmm. someone who Right. would like to be yeah. the first cellist on Mars. Like right. you're, yeah. gonna, you're probably <laughs> going to have to come back after a couple months, right? Or your body. Yeah. Oh yeah. I, I would plan to come back. Um, so yeah, I think, I think it's hard for me to say because I think about the biology mediated by the cultural. Um, so I don't know. I mean, and I think a lot of scientists do as well, even if they don't share my beliefs about whether we should do certain things where there's this conversation about what we put the Apollo astronauts through with such, such little knowledge of not only the, the lunar surface, but what would happen to astronauts, et cetera, where we've had years of research of astronauts in microgravity, which isn't quite the same, but, um, you know, comparing the preparation that we have now versus then a lot of scientists, or at least a subsect of scientists are starting to say, well, hey, we're better prepared than we were before. So why can't we do something lower risk than Apollo um, for a short period of time? Like, wh where is the line that we draw? Why are we being so careful? 
Um, and I think there was this interesting, I don't know, I think it was a paper uh, that was saying about planetary protection where they were saying, you know, our our ability to detect like how much we're going to contaminate another planet is going to hit a limit. So why don't we just go? Or like, <laughs> you know, we... <sighs> You know, as, sort of asking the, que- the blunt question of, are we dragging our feet for moral issues or because we're stuck in bureaucracy? Um, so, you know, I wouldn't necessarily agree with that, but it, it's still this idea of negotiating the biological through this this cultural or the government or the political. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. It, it's hard for me to say. I, I'd be worried. I mean, I'm a skeptic and I would be very, very worried of of sending astronauts to Mars because of, I think in particular the radiation. Um, but also, yeah, I mean, we don't know what 38% gravity does to a human being. And I think the psychological effects are also going to be like pretty extreme. So for, for a music project, I was reading, um, uh, the Apollo Capcom recordings and it's amazing how quickly these astronauts became so irritable with each other. And like, it's, it's like, it's so funny to read, but then you think like, oh my God, you're stuck with two other, you know, two, three other people in a tiny thing. You're really, really, really scared. You don't know what's happening to your body. You probably don't feel great. And I think about how I feel like, so I'm, I'm chronically ill. I think like, if I have a bad pain day on Mars, I'm going to kill someone. <laughs> you know? Maybe not actually kill someone, but just... I think it's hard for me to conceive of what that would even look like to send people. Um, and that's, that's a, a sort of a mental experiment that I do with uh, kids when I get the chance and ask them like, what, what do you think? Because kids are so blunt and they would just be like, I would hate that. <laughs> um, and I think, that, I think they just tell the truth that we don't to tell the truth that we don't want to admit ourselves. And um, yeah, I, I mean, yeah, I think I'd be mostly concerned about the psychological and also like what lines have we sort of crossed to get there with regards to the biology and the contamination and the health, if that makes sense. Definitely. <laughs> I think I answered your question. <laughs> yeah, I think we're edging a little closer to some of your writing that brought us into conversation in the first place by bringing up the fact that, you know, Dvorsky and many others have made the point that it's probably the case that we will need to radically re-engineer the human body in order to Mm -hmm. adapt to these environments. And that gets into all kinds of messy (laughs) ethical terrain. Um, I mean, it's funny to even call it terrain if we're talking about space, but, but uh, (laughs) you know, these issues around, uh, you know, the design of people Mm. and, Mm -hmm. you know, the question, I mean, it's, it's one thing to, to, you know, space monkey are Apollo astronauts. And, and, you know, it's like, well, that's slightly, it's as informed as possible consent, you know? But like, (laughs) if we're talking about designing, you know, space people from scratch, that's a whole thing. Um, And then of course, you know, that, that in a way uh, it obviates and then, but also like exponentially complexifies current, issues with Mm -hmm. identity you know and and like what it means to be uh to have access or Mm -hmm. you know because there's you know Mm. the other part which is like 
the people that are privileged to live in these environments are also probably not capable of returning to earth. I don't know. Like, what right. are your, so yeah, I think, yeah. like, now we're getting into a little bit more of like, yeah. <laughs> you know, the, who gets to go, who gets, right. Right, and I think right, that, that right. ties yeah. in really well with your, you know, the data visualization yeah. work as well. And I'd love to hear mm. you expound on that. Mm. Well, I think about it a lot um, because so I, yeah, I have a, a chronic illness that is disabling. Um, and I think, I think about this a lot because I want to be an astronaut. You know, I've had this conversation with like flight surgeons and they've said like, well, it's, it doesn't disqualify, you know, like that's good enough. But there's this really fantastic recent conversation in the disability community about disabled astronauts, which is amazing. And I think it's, it's so thought provoking on so many levels where they say the most qualified people to go to space are disabled people because we have to adapt to new environments constantly, right? A lot of the times our bodies work in completely different ways that are actually better suited to space with regards to um, sort of uh, a reliance on certain technology or being able to uh, inject yourself every day, which is something that a lot of people would have a problem with or, or drawing blood or, um, you know, taking pills on time, you know, having the routine to like keep yourself alive. A lot of people don't even have to think about that during the day. Whereas I think, okay, I have this amount of energy. I can do this and this and this, but I have to prep for something that's next week or tomorrow. I need to take my medication at this time or else it will cause this problem. If that happens, I have to do this. And, um, it's, you know, the sort of regimented routine of like keeping yourself alive, which is something that astronauts will have to do or astronauts do indeed um, do. And of course, their bodies do change in microgravity and the adjustments there that a lot of especially like chronically ill people have to go through as their bodies change very rapidly, very unexpectedly and sort of emotionally grappling with that is something that also like a lot of able-bodied people may not necessarily go through in their lives before sort of like getting into older age, which is sort of included in the conversation where a lot of people are saying, well, old, older people would actually make great astronauts because, you know, they they can understand their bodies changing and, and betraying them and, and doing all sorts of things. Um, so that's something I've thought about a lot. And, you know, thinking about how, uh, like with fatigue, uh, my relationship to energy is very different where I can adjust very quickly to a different type of schedule. So I think, Oh, Mars time, that would be so easy for me. <laughs> right. Or, um, Just 25 minutes extra napping. Is right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or, um, uh, you know, even like the, the very deep psychological philosophical concepts of how we relate to our bodies. Um, and, and then having that shift very quickly, multiple times um, is something that a lot of disabled people go through. And so I, I love thinking about that. And I, I such a strong supporter of that. And, um, but of course it also comes to interrogate this idea of um, the, you know, the relationship of the able body and space, which is quite long. So I think it was, it was well before Apollo, but uh, I think in the forties and fifties, there was a program, um, with NASA, where there was, uh, they were doing sort of astronaut tests with 11 um, deaf men who had the same condition. And the idea was that they, their inner ear fluid worked differently than other people, so they wouldn't get motion sick with a lot of these tests, which would be, mm. would make them amazing astronauts because it's such a huge <laughs> hurdle for so many people. And, um, 
And then when they were done, they were just told, okay, go back to your lives. Right. And, you know, from the very beginning, and it's, it's also this relationship with the military. And I think that's something that can't be ignored with this idea of like, you know, this idea of, of building the perfect astronaut, like you can't separate the language or the concepts or the technology from this idea of building the perfect soldier because of how the military has always been tied to space exploration, how eugenics has always been a major uh, component of war and, and our ideas of what's considered health. Um, so yeah, it taps into so much and I'm not sure that it's discussed enough in space exploration to be honest, but I think it's, you know, becoming a little more common um, where we're, we're starting to ask who's getting to go. And, you know, I think there are some, little changes where like say NASA is um, picked their first planetary geologist with the most recent class who is a Mars rover scientist, you know, she's not a pilot and um, they're starting to move away, I guess, from like solely focusing on having people with, with piloting experience. Um, but there's still a narrative and I, I don't think you can bring it back down to a space agency, but a cultural narrative of who represents us as people um, which is something that I'm very concerned about and something that I like to talk again to kids about, especially, um, where, and, and it comes back to my, what I said about visualization. Why do I get to see this, but no one else where, you know, who, who elected me to be someone who gets to see the surface of Mars? <laughs> like, I know I'm not there, but it's, it's, impactful it's it's something that affects me to the core it is another world that i get to see and purely because of the way our institutions are set up no one else is going to see this unless i put it on youtube or share it or bring it into a classroom but most people don't most people don't have the time to or they're not paid to or there's no desire to and you know from that aspect it's scary but then thinking further you know who do we send to represent us and um you know, we talk about we landed on the moon and, you know, people say, oh, well, we're starting to wonder, like, you know, who that we is. It's not what we're starting to. When it happened, people were questioning who is we. You know, there was a huge response in the African-American community after the landing on the moon saying, we're not part of this. Right. right? Whitey's like, on the moon. Yeah. Whitey's on the moon. Right. Yeah. Like the conversation has been there. Right. We've always wondered who is we. And by and I use we've always wondered in a pointed way. Like there, there is fundamentally an issue about access when it comes to space because the second you leave this planet, you are representing it, and that's that's. I mean, that's huge. That's something that's very difficult to grapple with, and I'm interested in grappling with it. <laughs> listening Sorry, to you, I'm a dark. Oh yeah, listening to yeah. you talk about this stuff. Uh, I just read the other day that there's something. I, I'm not going to get the numbers just right, but there's something like 1,700 named craters on the moon and like 28 of them are named after women. That you doesn't know, surprise me. You know, and, and like, <laughs> yeah. so, you know, this, and then of course, also you've pointed out rather uh, eloquently um, <laughs> in, in some of your writing that, and obviously there's a whole huge conversation around this. You're not alone in, in feeling this way that framing the discussion as space colonization is yeah. like already a, so there's a sense yeah. in which um no matter who ends up out there mm -hmm. uh that 
they are going to be stepping into an already very troubled history and like living yeah. in the shadow of our fuckery, you know, <laughs> like in a, in a serious yeah. way. And, yeah. and then on top of that, um, you know, there is this, this uh, through line in our mythology and science fiction, uh, you know, of the sort of Olympian gods up there on the Holy Mountain. Mm. And that's, that's showing up in our imaginations of extraordinary inequality in the future in like films right. like Elysium, you know, right. where like all yeah. of the immortal, uh, you know, space suburbanites are like mm-hmm. living up in their, their orbital ring and everyone else is, or if you see the same thing in Blade Runner, you know, that, that right, basically right. Yeah. earth has been left to the losers, you yeah. know? And, and yeah, so, yeah. you know, how do you imagine us routing around these issues like i mean are we are we doomed to just (laughs) suffer this nonsense to like have it like because there's that whole thing of like you know wherever you go there you are you know and we bring all of this insanity with us like how do we not do that oh i think about this well i i try not to be a fatalist because i think that would make me unhappy um at the end of the day i just don't want to be unhappy (laughs) <laughs> um so yeah ooh i don't think and and this relates to what i was saying about like biology mediated by society and like leaving earth is becoming something more than just you right i i don't think now or in the next 100 years okay i'll say 50 cuz i'm not a fatalist um we will we will not be culturally ready to do it. I don't think we were culturally ready with Apollo. Um, it was, I mean, besides like being the wrong motivations to do it, we weren't culturally ready. And I don't know that we'll ever be. I don't know if we'll ever reach a point where doing it can be absent of replicating or reifying or strengthening harmful institutions. Um, and you know, part of that is that like every aspect of space exploration is colored in some way by like war technology, um, which is very hard to escape when you still have like war economies, which is what the West is and everywhere. Um, go Werner von Braun, right? (laughs) Yeah. So we're just going to forget your Nazi. Honestly, no, I want to, I want to talk about that because it should be just always be discussed. I mean, people say it was long ago and it was not like it was what 40, 50 years ago. Like uh, I mean, there are streets named after him. Yeah. There are monuments to him. He's a war criminal and we forgave him. And so if that was only a few decades ago, what, what are we going to do now with, with, how we discuss space, how we talk about, you know, turning the solar system into a giant factory or whatever Jeff Bezos said the other day about having millions of ununionized workers out in the, the galaxy. I don't know exactly what oh, he speaking said. Of, speaking of naming <laughs> high albedo regions, you know, you talk about that, like the his oh shiny head, you know, <laughs> deserves to yeah. be named after a white guy. Uh, <laughs> Sorry, Jeff. Uh, 
I mean, this, here's the problem, right? Is that like we're sitting here, we're we're sitting here with like this extraordinary Schadenfreude over people that, without question, have appropriated way beyond what they actually, you know, health, healthily, sustainably should have. Um, yeah. But at the same time, like the vi- the the sort of Star Trek esque vision that so many uh, space enthusiasts stand behind. Um, you know, it just, I i have a, a hard time imagining that we're going to be able to do like Occupy Mars, where like our, our class <laughs> conflicts are going to, you know, like in order for us to survive in these spaces, obviously like that can't be like, we can't have the 99% right. against the 1% in space. Like it's, <laughs> it's a rough game here, but it's impossible out there. Yeah. Presumably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, presumably, right. I mean, yeah. How, how do we, I guess the question is how do we, you know, I, I thought about this in, you know, bringing up the military thing is really important. I thought, you know, the first space race being about a show of military power. Mm-hmm. Um, the second space race, if we're imagining this sort of, forgive me for getting kind of mystical here but yeah like there's a you know the the uh the hindu chakra system you know Mm -hmm. your your root chakra is survival and then your second chakra is reproduction and it seems like Mm -hmm. space race two is about like communion with the other and you know the mitosis of the biosphere and Mm -hmm. it's sexy Mm -hmm. you know and i feel like maybe (laughs) there's something about having to like change the way that we think about it, the way that we talk about it, so that we're all comfortable getting down together on this common goal. I don't know. Where, right. What's, yeah. You know, what are your, what are your thoughts on what it will take for us to get there? Oh, for, um, us, to, for us to like move culturally into the space where this kind of thing is possible. Ending capitalism. <laughs> um, I mean. Replicators. Yeah, I, I, I always bring up kids just because they like they're saying more important things than me <laughs> and I just love what they say um but I asked something similar of a group of kids the other day um it, it was more like and I'd love to do this I just asked them should we go to Mars and I don't qualify and like overwhelmingly kids say no and I asked them why and they say like look how messed up this place is. And it's it's not just the, we should take care of Earth first, which they say, but they also say, like, how could we ever go somewhere and not bring it with us? Um, but they furthermore say, and, and this was quite sage and, like, very, very um, impactful to me. And it was it was a group of mostly students of color in London, and they, they said, there's no way that we can have something for profit somewhere where we can, where a company can say, I own this and not have armed conflict. Mm. Which is like, (laughs) thank you, tiny Karl Marx. (laughs) (laughs) He's got the hair and the beard and everything. (laughs) But I mean, and there's like further commentary about like what these kids have seen, you know, where the, the countries that their parents come from or my parents come from where like land is related to conflict, which is related to poverty that is inevitably tied to technology that like kids can see. And 
I think that, I think that's what strikes me that if if even children can see that and say like, well, if if a company or a government owns part of the moon, well, of course we're going to have war in space. Like if they if they can derive that, it means I don't know. It, it's it's both okay. Well, then it must be dire. But two, like there is a consciousness which is so hopeful, and people are actually talking about it, not just you know, in academic spaces, but everyday people are thinking like, wait a minute, what, look at what we do here. Let's actually think about, you know, if I were out there, well, of course I would feel threatened or of course I would act in this way. And, and I think there's something philosophical and psychological where we're shifting into a space of people being able to like empathize with that future situation, which is fascinating in like a material history sort of way, but also like I, I again like me being committed to not being a fatalist. I want that to mean something very good. Um, so with regards like how you can do it, um, I hope we're in the moment of where we're doing it. <laughs> I would hope. Um, uh, I mean, disarming disarming space. I think would be the first step, which you know considering what the u.s just did today about you know the the our treaty with russia i don't know if will happen soon but i would hope so um disarming space i think ratifying the moon treaty um so that is a treaty which essentially like attaches onto the outer space treaty and says furthermore like you, you shouldn't have weapons in in orbit or um, property should be mediated in a certain way if there's any property at all or whatever um which th- Every single country with a space agency did not ratify, but much of the global South did. Um, oh, that's you know, have, interesting. Yes, it is. <laughs> that's something I learned um, when I was prepping, like to talk about space ethics to kids, and that was oh, so fascinating. <laughs> um, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, ratifying that treaty, having, I mean, the UN has a committee that discusses these things that talks about space ethics, and. Again, like a lot of countries with space agencies or space, space, sorry, space technology are like not really committed to them, even if there are members of, of, you know, the U.S. or Britain who go to these. I mean, it's it's on like an individual basis. It's not like a part of our government is concerned about what humans in space will look like, even if we're declaring that we're going to be there in like the next three years, which is you know, another issue. Um, so just so I mean- that's that's basically because all of the wealthy spacefaring countries regard this as a land grab, right? I mean, well, nobody's yeah. gonna, nobody's going to agree to play fair on a land grab, like. Right. Yeah, and I, I mean, and that's why I mentioned capitalism. I don't do it just blithely, but you know, when you have, especially like, say, the U.S. government, where we have this cultural commitment to this idea of the free market, whether we have it or not. Um, you know, telling a company that they can't do something is actually it's deeply political. It's deeply historically tied to like conflict in our in our country, and people don't even want to talk about that, right? They just say like, "Of course we'll mine asteroids. Of course companies can do whatever they want." Um, you know, with with limited regulation, and oh gosh, that's terrifying. Um, this is actually this is great because <laughs> we're right squarely in the center of the the landing area of the next question i've been holding for you which is about the spacex mars colony oh 
And like, <laughs> how the hell is that going to be regulated? And like, do those do those people basically belong to Elon Musk? Like, you know, you think about like, you know, if we're gonna continue with the atrocious frontier metaphor, right? You know, you know, um, um, then Elon have, space cowboys. <laughs> yeah. Then what we have are, you know, it looks like a like a gold mining town or something, and those people were, you know, there's there's a lot of great songs about this, about people that were owned by the company. Yeah. You know? yeah, and, yeah, yeah. And Definitely. when your life depends on it, you know, yeah. it depends on these, these corporate support systems. Like we're already, I mean, we're in like a very Cory Doctorow space here thinking about like digital <laughs> rights management. Right. And yeah. like who own, like at, at, at that point, like doesn't SpaceX own the air that you're breathing? Like what right. kind of systems like I, 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 you're way more immersed in this conversation than I am. I'm curious to know how you see or hear people thinking their way around these particular issues, mm. thinking like getting up ahead of this problem and saying, these are the regulatory frameworks we're going to need. These are right. the business models we're going to need mm -hmm. to make this not like a human rights atrocity. Right. To be fair, I don't hear anyone saying anything. <laughs> I don't know. If, <laughs> I don't know what that's a product of it could just be that i sit in my office all day and don't engage with what's out there it could be that the conversation's happening in a different part of the country in a different country um i'm sure i mean i know that there are a lot of people in space ethics who are very critical about these types of things who are bringing up these things especially with regards to law um so i'll admit that i'm not well read about it like more of those current events i'm a little more well read if like towards the Apollo era. Um, which is, I think says a lot. I mean, I, I don't know that it's scientists who are discussing it, you know, outside like these academic space ethics sorts of people. I think, I mean, the communities who are discussing say digital rights or land rights, or um, does a company own your body? are typically people in unions, typically like black communities, typically immigrant communities who've like been facing this for centuries. And um, I don't remember what, who wrote it, but I remember reading like, yes, it's very novel, for example, thinking about us on Mars with regards to technology, but is it actually, will those issues actually be new or will they just be things that like, wealthy people with access will suddenly experience that everyone else has been experiencing for centuries due to colonization mm. right so like yeah so you're an astronaut and you're sort of owned by spacex and you're relying on them for your life and you're uncomfortable with the living conditions and suddenly they can say like we're changing how you're living today or they can say if you don't do this remember that we control your life i mean that's a really familiar narrative and like lots of people have lived that Right. And um, so I think in a sense, yeah, it's been talked about for a really long time, just not with regards to space and like space specific technology. Um, so like one thing with, with Jeff Bezos saying he's going to take over the galaxy or whatever, I refuse to like actually quote him. <laughs> um, I mean, the exact language he used about like industry on asteroids and, and that sort of thing. I mean, if you just look at his own business practices or any business practices of like these captains of industry with regards to unions and mining in 
you know, South America, in Africa, and South Asia, and Southeast Asia. I mean, we've seen these issues play out. We've seen activists discuss this and fight it for a really long time. We've seen them be assassinated. Um, so we don't. I mean, yeah, we don't have good examples with regards to like doing it in an in a moral, nonviolent way. Um, so you know, I think. Returning to the question of what will it take to actually do this in 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 a way that is not evil, <laughs> I think it will. I think it will require a very very deep collective study of Earth's history and the treatment of of human beings, just generally, um, and and colonization and industry and how those two things are connected. Yeah, I, I did an entire series of episodes back around uh, Blade Runner 2049 mm-hmm. and and just how that film depicted a very believable, albeit depressing, lack of regard for the dignity of human life, mm-hmm. you know, and, mm-hmm. and I, you know, you've got Jared Leto's, uh, you know, trillionaire industrialist killing the replicant woman that he had just created and being mm-hmm. like, you know, barren space between the stars. Like he wants robot slaves that will reproduce so mm-hmm. that he can, you know, Jeffrey Epstein his way through the cosmos. But, you know, the other side, and you know, you've, you talk about this is it sounds to me like the preliminary or the prerequisite for this is the decolonization of space science Right? Like that, that without, you know, for example, uh, the American Political Science Review, now this is big news at SFI right now, that that uh, the APSR, which is this very prestigious poli sci journal for those who do not know, mm-hmm. now has for the first time in its history, an editorial re- board uh, of entirely female political scientists. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, their their point is... It was like the journal only publishes two thirds of its available pages and only accepts 5% of its papers and only mm-hmm. like 23% of the papers accepted are, are written by women or, or people <laughs> of color. And it's like, well, you've got a third, you've got all of this extra space into which we can expand mm-hmm. and include more people who are coming into this from a different perspective. Because if you come into it, you know, the, the argument there is that if you come in f- from a, you know, a history of, class or race conflict then those are the things you're inclined to study and so you actually you know it's not just about a diversity of faces in some sort of hollow 1990s affirmative action way it's about literally bringing in different kinds of minds different sets of experience Mm -hmm. and that yeah so so you know as as an advocate for the decolonization of space science uh what are the steps that we can take to that mm. you know and to, again that's a right. folding it back yeah. into your work with public outreach and making mm-hmm. space accessible to people mm-hmm. i think well so astronomy is the least diverse racially and gender wise of all fields of physics so we could start there and <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I don't just mean getting people in because it's you know everyone's interested in space from a young age it's the reasons why people are pushed out. I mean, it's the exploitative nature of academia and how that accelerates things like racism and misogyny. Um, it's the culture in astronomy where if you're famous enough, it doesn't matter if you've hurt people. 
um, where I think the theme thing is sort of, it's not unique to astronomy, but it's very big where you have very famous people like, um, well, people I should probably shouldn't name, <laughs> um, you see on TV who are really famous who say catchy things, but they've like assaulted women and, you know, we won't even talk about it. Right. It's not even that it's a controversy. We won't even talk about it. And you're um, not naming them because you're concerned for your career. Like um, what is what is the veil of silence over this? Oh, I mean, okay, I'm talking Neil deGrasse Tyson. Mm. I, <laughs> there have been articles about this, um, or like uh, Lawrence Krauss, who's still you know in the media, still publishing like really popular science things. Um, so shout out to anyone who, who really likes them. But <laughs> it's like <laughs> the fame thing is actually, I mean, it's big. And it's not just the people we see on TV. It's, you know, this person changed the fields. This person headed this mission. You know, this person's the head of the Institute. Um, and it's that combined with the fact that people aren't willing to be active bystanders, which I think is changing. And so in planetary science, um, there there's a great, great group of people um, who are essentially like tenured and safe who are saying like, this is the time to change things. They've created uh, bystander intervention trainings at conferences and they just like bring it and they say like, come, we need to start doing this like now. It's immediate, it's dire, um, which is which is incredible. But I think it's a big issue where, especially if you don't have a really diverse community, um, you know, even the most well-meaning people might not even notice that someone is being harassed or might not know what to say. Um and those, I mean, those things like propagate, it's not just like the, the workplace environment, it's how people are hired, it's how people are, you know, if, if you're the only person of color in an entire institute, like the psychological effects of that, but also like, um, wondering why like no one else is there is an effect or, you know, there's so many, there's so many layers to like, I can't even really like think of all of them, but thinking about how job jobs are listed or, um, a real snobbishness about, you know, where you hire people from, like what universities they come from, whether they had community college education. I think, oh, there's so many layers in astronomy. Let me not get into it completely. Um, but it's it's extremely pervasive, and I you know it's not unique. It's it's across science, but I think astronomy, you know, there's some fields of science that at least talk about it, and I don't think in astronomy we do. Um, and you know, I think it's re- very much viscerally related to say the issue on Mauna Kea right now, where you have astronomers essentially saying, well, we're being objective, and you're being subjective and cultural and spiritual and whatever, but we have to look at the real facts where we as scientists, of course, define objectivity. And when we continually define objectivity to protect our own power, well, obviously it's not objective anymore, but it creates a really, really tidy explanation for why you're doing something or a justification. Or you can say, well, actually set the goalposts for what a fact is, and I say this is correct, so you can't say anything, right? Ooh, I mean, that's You, you just science, took it right? into a very interesting place <laughs> that I like to, I like to think about... Uh, mm-hmm out loud on this show quite a bit which is who determines what a true thing is mm, you know who okay. determines the 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 basis for validity of mm-hmm. our empirical claims in the first place yeah. because the whole premise is <laughs> right. it was like a third person 
fact is like yes. there's two people we agree and a third person who does not. And so yes. like inherently, you know, you, one would think that the scientific process is about identifying the other and folding mm -hmm. them into the conversation. Right. But it's not. It's about rejecting it. And, um, oh, and the, yeah, it's, it, yeah, it's something that I think about a lot and something that I've written about a lot, at least, or like yelled about on Twitter where, you know, it's this enlightenment <laughs> idea of like, we've invented logic and subscribed to it. Right. And, and that's just the definition of ideology, which is very scary when you think about it, when you think like, yeah, science is pretty much, it's, it can be neutral and it can be tame. But when you really think about it, when it, our politics are threatened, when, someone tells us no when we want to build a telescope or someone tells us no when we want to launch something from their land or someone tells us no about studying them like they're animals. Like, and then relying on this framework that says we are objective truth seekers. Um, I mean, like not to be extreme, but that is kind of the definition of fascism, which is why I'm really scared at this moment, you know, in politics and in science where, the rhetoric of like neo-fascists has a critical overlap with scientists who are digging their heels in about what we're ethically allowed to do, which of course has a history in say like the Holocaust with scientists being involved with that, with eugenics in the United States, um, you know, exper experimentation on colonized peoples. Like that's, it's not new, um, but I don't know what the next iteration is. Um, <laughs> Well, and clearly, the, I'm if, we're sending, all the time. if we're sending people right. into space, we're yeah. guaranteeing that they're going to be on reality TV. Like, let's just right. start there. Yeah. You know, yeah. and was it was it Adam Curtis? I forget who did We Live in Public. Did you ever watch mm. that? No. There was this extraordinarily creepy documentary about uh, before uh, social media, mm -hmm. um, sometime in New York in the 1990s, this crazy millionaire decided to have a bunch of people like he recruited a bunch of people to live underground, like in the, in the basement of some building where mm -hmm. they were given whatever they wanted. Mm. And the only catch was that all of them were on CCTV all the time. And from their mm. bunks, they could watch anyone else. So okay. it wasn't just like a panopticon. Oof. It was right. like a, a like hall of mirrors panopticon where right. the people in the, the social experiment were unaware of who among them was watching them at any given time. So mm -hmm. a complete glass house. Right. You know, and I, that's another thing that we haven't really talked about, which is mm -hmm. it seems obvious. Like, I, I, I don't know if you've, there's a spectacular panel discussion uh, at the Lindisfarne association from the 1970s, their EF Schumacher mm -hmm. tapes. I'll link to this in the show notes. Uh, where Edgar Mitchell, who was part of the, the Lindisfarne Association, mm -hmm. basically said, you guys don't, they, they were debating whether or not a, a permanent space station is ethical. It, this mm -hmm. is like before okay. Skylab, right? Right, And yeah. saying, okay, is, it, is this ethical? And one of, the, one of the concerns that I believe Mitchell brought up in this was, he's like, you don't understand what a total surveillance nightmare a submarine is. Mm, you know yeah. and like the yeah, fact yeah. the fact that we require these extremely to to the modern sort of private psychology mm -hmm. which i think ought to you know ought to be held in suspect yeah. any held suspect <laughs> anyway yeah. um but that 
that there is a sort of, there's an atrocious loss of personal agency in living on something where the, like a space station where the, the loops are so small and everything mm -hmm. has to be monitored so carefully. Mm -hmm. And so in, in, in that sense, also, it seems as though it will require a very different kind of person, not just a person right. with no vestibular distress, right? right? But a person who doesn't mind the fact that their, you know, nutrigenomic profile is like available on social right. media and right. people are like watching yeah. what's going on inside their bodies in VR mm. 24 hours a day for fun. Mm -hmm. You know, like you become the yeah. ultimate cam slave in some weird yeah. way. I don't know. That's right. a, that's a yeah. rant, not a question. But <laughs> I'm going to just well, punt it to you. Yeah. I mean, it's this whole idea and a lot of, there are a lot of really interesting articles I think about this, about uh, like thinking about, surveillance combined with social media and privacy combined with carcerality where if you're a monitored population you don't even need to be incarcerated physically because you are socially incarcerated um and so our obsession the next australia well i mean you know this this <laughs> i mean that's that's like a good metaphor when you think about like all the set like settler colonial like language whatever but you know thinking about how obsessed we are culturally with like carcerality and, and punishment, even if you're not punishing someone or, you know, the idea that we have access to another human being, um, is, isn't just like, you know, this I idea of like sort of, um, one person accessing another and like the singular pipeline of privacy, but also this idea of this person doesn't have control, which is, so, you know, this idea of, of carcerality. So I, I'm borrowing, like, these concepts from, from prison abolitionists, but this idea that socially we can have access to other human beings in this, in this very fundamental way. Um, so I, I was going to bring up, because it, it reminds me of it, um, so I only recently read maybe last year about, like, the first sort of, I know there's a lot of mythology around it, but the first strike in space. I don't know if you've heard about this. No. Oh, okay. Um I, I'll admit that I don't know all the details, but it was a mission, I want to say in the 60s, someone's going to correct me on this, which is good, <laughs> where uh, two astronauts were sent to orbit Earth and do a certain number of orbits, and um, they started getting very annoyed with Houston. And so uh, they shut off their communications somewhere, like, as it was, as, I think, you know, they didn't have a deep space network yet, so they weren't in, like, direct line with, um, with NASA's comms. So they turned off their system for, I think, two full, full days oh, and sent a list shit. of demands. And they said, we want to have free time. We want to be able to enjoy, you know, the views without having to do some sort of experiment or um, taking notes or whatever. We want to grow our beards out. <laughs> uh, you know, things like that. I mean, it was really basic. And there, yeah, there's loads of mythology around this. And like, not all of it is completely verified. But like, those are sort of the fundamentals where these two astronauts seem to have been like really upset by the way they were being monitored. And this whole idea of like, they suddenly realized that they weren't in control of their own bodies anymore in a really fundamental way. That was essentially like a panopticon, but you know, it's two people orbiting a planet 
Right. And you're so isolated and so watched and someone else has access to your body, to your time, to your labor. Um, which is, yeah, I, I think about that a lot. And something you said, said really brought that up, to, like back to my mind. Um, and so we don't know, I mean, and I think this, this fact like sort of resurfaced, uh, last year cause it was like the anniversary of it or something. And quite a lot of people said, well, what if this happened on Mars? Like, what if we had a strike on Mars? Um, and a lot of people said, well, you know, it, it was unfair. You know, their situation was unfair. They chose to be in it. But if you think about like the human cost, fundamentally, if you're sent in space, you don't know how you're going to react. And all of a sudden you you feel completely out of control. You have a right to say something, don't you? You have a right to ask for it to stop. But you're, you're orbiting your planet. You can't leave. Um, and it's, it's almost impossible to contend with and, and thinking about again, like this idea that we, we have this entitlement to other people and, and how social media is built into that and how surveillance, especially of like vulnerable people is built into that. Um, so I don't, I don't, that was also a rant, not an answer, but, well, I mean, uh, you know, to, this to me brings up the issue of, you know, when we're talking about, like, just to look at it in terms of, like, intimacy, right? Mm -hmm. That consent, mm -hmm. the, the whole point is that it consent can always be retracted. Yes. You know, and mm -hmm. to be on a Mars base, well, you're yeah. not, you can't exactly retract consent. So yeah. the, the question then becomes, how do we design these extraordinarily complex life right. support systems and mm -hmm. mission architectures in such a way that they can be adaptable that like right. we can decide to change the rules when we realize it's not working in six months mm -hmm. you mm. know like that's there's something about this that i feel that's another thing that seems like it's just going to keep right. us on the ground for a while yeah you yeah. know that we're just not at the point where our systems are evolutionary enough to, right to i never thought about this. yes Mm. I mean, yeah, I even just thinking about the basic thing of an astronaut gets injured in a way that's unexpected. And what do you do about it? So again, I, I'll bring up kids because they're great. I, I ran a really fun thought experiment, but it was really insightful where I said, one, you know, I'm in a group of 12 astronauts were given rations for the first leg of our mission before we get resupplied. Um, we're on the surface of Mars. I wake up. I'm very, very hungry, and I don't know why. Um, and my neighbor in the next bunk uh, isn't hungry at all, and he has a granola bar. And I ate mine already, and I'm really hungry. What a, is it okay for me to take his granola bar? And what happens if I do? And um, kids got really worked up about this. <laughs> So did I, because I, you know, I didn't have an answer. I really wanted to know what other people thought about it. Um, uh, so a lot of there, there was one kid who said that he should retaliate and harm me, which was interesting. <laughs> which was interesting. I mean, but if say an astronaut, you know, say my colleague actually thinks that, like clearly someone might think that. Um, another kid said, "Well, you have to distribute." based on needs, not just by 
everyone gets one granola bar. So if you're a hungrier person, shouldn't you get more? And I thought, well, how do we anticipate those needs? Was that little marks? Yeah. Yeah, it may have been. It may have been. It was a totally different day, but it was the same group of kids. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, and then and then I asked, what if we get into a fight and I kick a hole in his oxygen tank? And no, and it may have been on purpose. It may have been on accident, but no one saw me do it. What well, what if no one saw me take the granola bar? Do I have an obligation to tell someone? What is the morality of that? Like, if no one's here, if we don't have government right in front of us. What do we do? And, you know, we as people, and again, it's this, this sense of like we're built up in this this culture of carcerality, but we're not used to thinking of no immediate consequences. You can't call the police. You can't put someone in jail. And and these kids said, like, we need to find a way to, 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 to make peace because it's a really dangerous situation, but we don't know how that can happen. And I'm like, I don't know either. We don't, we just don't know. And, um, you know, I, I think the example of like causing harm to fellow astronauts is, is something to explore, but, but also this idea of who mediates like really basic moral issues if you're just 12 people on another planet and yeah, you're being watched and someone in Texas can yell at you, but they can't do anything to you. <laughs> I mean, it sounds to me like one of the, the prerequisite skills is going to be nonviolent communication and restorative yes. justice. <laughs> Yeah, I you would know, hope so. That, like, yeah. we just can't, we just can't do crime and punishment right. in space. <laughs> no. It is not right. going to work. We need, right. we need you <laughs> for your role in the mission. We can't lock you up any more right. than we already have, anyway. Um, yeah. yeah, but but I mean, you know, if we're fundamentally thinking, and space agencies are thinking about this, about you need really non-confrontational people who are comfortable forgiving things who are comfortable with letting things go or who are otherwise you know motivated by a certain morality that means that everyone's equal well then you're talking about things that are just non-congruent with our society like we're already thinking about stretching outside of our view of ourselves we're already thinking about you know if we send astronauts to space they can't live in a punitive culture which is totally something that we can't imagine for ourselves. Um, and I don't know if Elon Musk is thinking about that with his Mars colony. Probably not. And he'll probably have space police. But, you know, <laughs> thinking space about police. <laughs> I, don't, oh, I don't know if you know, but I just really have a thing about Elon Musk. <laughs> I don't blame you. Where are those solar roofing tiles, Musk? Yeah. Where, where, where are yeah. they? Why anyway. do we need underground highways if we can just fund more buses but anyway yeah. well Divya, we gotta we gotta wrap this up i gotta okay. but before before we go i i love ending these conversations with an invitation to Ooh. imagine that this will be unearthed or unmooned or whatever one day <laughs> by our unimaginably different historians but like what would you say to a future so exotic that you can't anticipate it or understand it? Or like what changes for you about your life imagining that that future is watching us, is listening to this conversation? Mm, um, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know. Listen to my SoundCloud. 
Uh, <laughs> just use we'll my play, SoundCloud we'll play link. play some of your stuff after the, the talk if you're cool with <laughs> oh, that. Thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that, was a, that was definitely a joke. Um, oh, I'm sorry. I think I would just want to apologize to. In some way, we've impacted future people in a bad way, probably. And if not, they've had to listen to us whinge a lot. So I would just apologize, I think. <laughs> awesome. Thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Future Fossils. This podcast is a part of the MindPod network, along with numerous other excellent programs. Go to mindpodnetwork.com and subscribe to them all. And stay tuned for another deep dive next week with Magenta Siba, the organizer of the Bloom Network, an international community of regenerative design thinkers and practitioners. If you'd like to help support Future Fossils, consider giving this show a five-star iTunes review or sharing it with someone you think might appreciate these conversations. For more episodes, show notes, copious extras, including music, art, Future Fossils coloring book, and book club, and more, visit patreon.com slash michaelgarcia. And now we'll lead out with one of Divya's own musical compositions, Aura Genesis, for voice, violin, saxophone, and piano. <laughs>